Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Shuftim this morning. We're in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and we're going to start, uh, for our purposes, at chapter 19 of the book of Deuteronomy. So chapter 19, verse 1. Uh, Shoftim is uh, a parsha that is devoted to the organization of the theocracy that was ancient Israel. And in general, when we say theocracy, we all get all hinky, right? And we all start to weird out, right? Because that comes with terrifying implications for us, you know, um, right now. It always has, right, to come with some pretty scary implications um, throughout history. But when we say theocracy and we're talking about the ancient world, it's because there wasn't an understanding that there was any other way to do it. It wasn't a theocracy because these people were more religious than other people. This was the worldview of the ancient Near East and before the ancient Near East. So think Egypt. Pharaoh was, of course, a god. So the the Israelite innovation on theocracy was actually right an evolution in ideas because god was king in ancient israel that's the radical move of israelite monotheism it's radical that the king who has a right with divine authority to rule over the people and everything that that king declares becomes part of the religious obligations of the people it is a radical move to say that king is not a flesh and blood king. That king is Melech HaOlam, king of the entire world, of the universe, of the cosmos. So that language may not be language that speaks very much to us. I'll be talking more about this at the High Holy Days. Um, but it was language that was universal. Everyone understood that the greatest power on the planet was the king. And the most powerful king on the planet was whoever, whatever empire at the time, had the biggest, baddest army. That king ruled. And that king was divine. So, so that's the, that's just the way the world is put together in the ancient world. The radical Israelite innovation is that law is not given by a human being who's semi-divine. Law is given by the only one who can call us into religious obligations, and those are political as well, of course, and that is the king of kings, the queen of queens. So, so that, so we have to start there when we look at Shoftim. We have to start from a place where there was a king. The question is, is there an authority higher than that king? And in our case, the answer was yes. Yudhe Vavhe. And law originates with yud heh And out of love, God reveals that law to everybody. That's huge. Who was the law revealed to in the ancient world? The king or the priests. Often there was tension between those two institutions. 
I'm watching, um, I'm watching, uh, a show with my daughter who loves mythology. And we're watching, and I cannot right now, Jason is the main character. Uh, um, Jason is the main character in this. It's a it's a render it's a re-rendering in a very interesting way of all the oh, those Greek myths that then translate into Roman mythology. Anyway, we're watching you know the queen battle the high priest, and my kid is asking, "Well, wait a minute, why why can the high priest charge the queen with you know a crime? She's the queen, she's the boss." And I'm like, well, yes and no. In any system that's got, right, the king or queen and then has the priesthood, you have natural tension built into that relationship. Sometimes that's a good thing because you want a balance of power. We have the same thing in the ancient world. We have the same thing in ancient Israel. So what we get in Shoftim is an understanding that there is a king, an earthly king, and there are all of these other things you need to be a just and ethical society with checks and balances. There have, so, so the law is revealed by God in love, according to our tradition, to the entire people. If that's true, then the entire people can hold the priesthood, the king, the judges accountable. That is a huge switch, right? If the law is revealed only to the king or by the king, meaning made up by the king and his supporters, um, or the priesthood, you know, the cult is only revealed, the laws of the cult are only revealed to the priesthood, then what you have is, okay, you need to follow the law set forth by the king and his, you know, people, his council, and you have to have your religious obligations be good, and that is determined by the priesthood. And only those people know that, and they're going to tell you what you need to know. And in the case of the priesthood, you're not going to get told anything. You just bring your offerings. We're not going to even tell you what happens with them. That's secret. Ancient Israel, the entire business is revealed. The entire thing down to you shall take out the liver and burn, right? Every single detail that we kind of go, who cares? Why do we need to read this? It was a radical thing that all of that was revealed and the people were supposed to study it. That was crazy in the ancient world. Why would you do that? Why would the priests allow the people to know exactly what they're supposed to do? That's just stupid, right? Um, that is an innovation that, that takes it takes religious authority out of the hands of the priests. The priests become the servants of the people Israel and their relationship to the divine. They are the experts, yes. And they are the ones, the only ones who can actually do that stuff. Okay. But that didn't make you super special. It made you super obligated. You didn't get a choice. I'd rather be an attorney. Sorry. You're born into the priesthood. That That's your job is to serve the people of Israel and their relationship to Yudhevavhei. And those people can go check and, right, make sure that the priests are doing what Torah tells us they're supposed to do. That is new.
So in this way, I just want us to appreciate in its own time the laws of Shoftim, setting forth the different offices and the different checks and balances on power that this is. It is wonderful for its time. And there are parts of this that informed the government that you and I live under here in the States today. The judiciary, right? All of that comes right from here. Amy, is your commentary, this is so extraordinary as to why the powers at that time allowed this to happen? You know, it's, it's, I think, I'd have to think about it a little longer, but I think just my guts tell me it's part of that whole, um, axis that changes in the ancient world about this time when monotheism is here. Monotheism gets a start in Egypt with Ankhenaten and then it's suppressed because the priests are like, are you kidding me? Right? The competing priests and priestesses of the other gods were like, excuse me? I don't think so. Right? So that, that was suppressed after he's dead, seriously suppressed and all of his statues are desecrated of that pharaoh who plays around with monotheism. So there, so Karen Armstrong, the scholar, she wants to say that there's something going on in the neighborhood among all the cultures and religion around the Levant around that time, and that there's some, some move towards a new understanding. Why? We don't know. She's got a book called The Axial Age about this transition, and um, I haven't yet had time to read it, but I, it's one of the books on my list because because it is a mystery, and it does seem to happen. Just all, you know, and by time period, we don't mean ten years. You know, we mean a, a, a you know a huge swath of time for us. But looking at human history, it's a it's a shorter time where where this movement towards this seems to be not just in ancient Israel, but in other parts of the world as well. Um. Those of us who study anthropology, those of you who've been learning with me for years know this term, terrestrial human culture, right, THC. Those things that are constant across every single culture. And I think there's something about terrestrial human culture that was going through an evolution. What, why, how, don't know, but it's fascinating to, to think about and to explore. All right, so that is what we're dealing with when we're dealing with Shoftim. We're dealing with laying out the ways that a theoc- that the Jewish theocracy, well, they, there wasn't Jewish, the Israelite theocracy was supposed to work. And there isn't anything other than a theocracy. That isn't a possibility. So we're going to look um, not at those offices. We looked a little bit last year at those offices, and next year we will too when we're in the closing third. Instead, we're going to look at this interesting business right in the middle of the Parsha, starting at chapter 19, we always read this Parsha as Elul begins. So tell me a little bit about Elul. What what makes Elul special? Elul, the month, the Hebrew month of Elul. What makes it special? It's the month before the high holidays. The month before the high holidays. holidays. And why is that special? Uh, Because it's a month of preparation. Uh, religiously, the shofar was blown every day. It's a day of reawakening. Uh, an extra psalm is added. Some, I think it's 27, is added to the service to start to mentally prepare people to face themselves and God. 
So Elul is a month of preparation. We have special rituals that are put into place during Elul and special liturgy to help move us mm-hmm. towards this place of inner contemplation. Isn't it also the New Year of Animals? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, the month of Elul, right, written like this, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed. Yeah. And the rabbis give us this beautiful acronym. What does it stand for? Don't think it's the name of a month only, God forbid. We're way deeper than that. Ani. Anybody want to guess? <laughs> Nachon. So the rabbis say Elul is an acronym. It's not just the name of a month. It stands for Ani Lidodi Vidodi Li. I belong to my beloved, capital B, and the beloved, capital B, is mine, like belongs to me. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Elul is about remembering that we are in a lifetime love relationship, an intimate, loving relationship with the one, capital O. And that's why Elul, of course, has those letters in it. Um, which is a beautiful teaching uh, about the point of Elul being to reposition our minds, hearts, spirits towards repairing that relationship, renewing and repairing that relationship. Because that relationship gets damaged, doesn't it? Yeah. Which is why we need this whole system to begin with. Why did we need priests? Why did we need festivals? Why did we need sacrifice? Why did we need all of that? Because we human beings tend to screw up. And we tend to forget. And sometimes we purposefully forget. Because if I forget, I can do what I want. Or, right, what's going to get me more of whatever it is I'm wanting. Attention, money, power, influence, right? Whatever the more is, if I forget all this, I can go for that. And we do it all the time. We forget, and we're supposed to remember. We forget, we come back. We forget, we return. We forget, we do teshuva. That's that's always happening. And Elul is supposed to be the month where it's like that gets put at the absolute top of the agenda. We're going to start moving other things to the side and really focus on the way that we need to, in a grander sense, return to that relationship. So we're going to talk a little bit about damage to that relationship. We're going to talk about Elul. We're going to talk about all of this in the context of chapter 19. Somebody want to read? When the Lord your God has cut down the nations whose land the Lord your God is assigning to you, and you have dispossessed them and settled in their towns and homes, you shall set aside three cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall survey the distances and divide into three parts the territory of the country that the Lord your God has allotted to you so that any manslayer may have a place to flee to. Now this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live. One who has killed another unwittingly, having without, uh, without having been his enemy in the past. For instance, uh, a man goes with his neighbor into a grove to cut wood. As his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, the axe head flies off the handle and strikes the other so that he dies. That man shall flee to one of these cities and live. Otherwise, when the distance is great, the blood avenger, pursuing the manslayer in hot anger, may overtake him and kill him, yet he did not incur the death penalty since he'd never been the other's enemy. That's why I command you, set aside these cities. 
of three cities. Okay. Um, okay. So we have seen this um, business of the cities to which a manslayer can flee. We've seen it in other places. We get it mentioned in Exodus, which talks originally about the distinction between accidental and intentional killing and says that God will provide a place for accidental killers when they get to the land for them to be. And Numbers fleshes that law out. We're going to look at that text uh, together in a minute. And here we have in Deuteronomy, the, the focus changes just a little bit, but the focus here is on being sure that innocent blood is not going to be shed. So if I kill somebody in the ancient Near East, what happens next? Their family comes after me, right? Because if I spill blood... What happens? Just tell me literally what happens. I shed a person's blood. What happens to that blood? It contaminates the ground. It contaminates the ground. It contaminates the land. Because it's innocent blood. Right? Innocent bloodshed contaminates the ground. So what has to happen about that contamination? Got to be cleaned up. It's got to be cleaned up. How was it originally thought you clean that up? With guilty blood. (laughs) Right? So if that blood is innocent and it is crying out from the ground, right, as we have that image in Torah, then the way you neutralized that problem, because that's a problem, you now have nuclear contamination of the soil. That's a problem. You have to deal with that by the guilty blood being shed, and that neutralizes it. I being the guilty party if I caused it. So that's that's the system ancient Israel is coming out of. Torah law here is coming to deal with someone who accidentally sheds blood. Because if I accidentally shed someone's blood, their family doesn't really care all that much. Right, whether it was on purpose or accidental, I have caused the death of their loved one or their clan member for their pride and their honor and them doing what that person who's dead now can't do and demands is coming after me. Torah's very concerned that if I did it by accident, the shedding of my blood becomes another contamination. And it was happening a lot, or we wouldn't have three places in Torah where this gets addressed. It must have been really problematic and rampant that somebody would accidentally cause someone's death, and now they're killed. And now this family says it wasn't on purpose, so now we're going to kill you because you've actually now shed innocent blood from our clan and then this just goes on and on and on and on in a cycle of violence that we see in different parts of the world still today. This happens still today, we know that, and sometimes it gets so big, think of Hutu and Tutsi. What did that result in? Horrifying, horrifying amounts of innocent deaths, including children, teenagers with machete. I mean, just... It's 
horrifying to think what this taken to right a really big level results in. They knew that. So this is really an attempt to make sure no innocent blood is shed and that things don't ramp up into clan warfare that's going to get really ugly. So so that's what we're dealing with on the legislative level. We're talking about somebody who has accidentally caused the death and we get an example of what that might look like, right? Construction here is interesting because it starts with a principle and it feels so different from other places in Torah. It starts with a general principle. It says, and now here's an example of exactly what that means. And then it kind of finishes up with, and now let me explain why we need to do that. Very logical, but very different in feeling from earlier Torah. One of the ways that you know Deuteronomy is a later composition, right? This is exactly one of the places people, you know, critical scholars go to figure out the dating of different texts. Is is case law Mm -hmm. how we deal with law in Exodus? Right? You know, no. Or sometimes yes. Like so, um, but, but this way of explaining the law, you lawyers know better than me what, what this is called. Um, but this, this form of law is, is very, very much, uh, the Deuteronomist. I mean, there's no, the, the, as I recall, the Ten Commandments, it doesn't say afterwards, now for example. <laughs> right. Here's exactly. For example, right. your mom and dad are sitting around the kitchen right. table, <laughs> and you come in. When you get your packet, turn it over to the back of the packet, where you will find a commentary by Jonathan Boyd the executive director of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research. Our Parsha begins, in the early part of our Parsha, we get this injunction, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, which means what? Justice, justice, you shall pursue. I love that. Justice, justice, shall you pursue. Torah doesn't waste words. The fact that it's repeated twice, the rabbis have lots of discussion about why it's repeated twice. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdov, justice. Justice shall you pursue as a people. And then we get all of this Parsha talking about, okay, what does that look like? What, what does a just society look like? And this is one component of that society. So um, there were some very interesting comments made by Jonathan Boyd that I want to share with you. Um so, Bert, will you read because you're by the microphone? In Parshat Vayit Hanan, which we read a few weeks ago, there's a rather strange short interlude in the narrative just before the repetition of the Ten Commandments, which describes how Moses established cities of refuge, places to where the accidental killer can flee and gain sanctuary. I've often wondered whether the placement of this text is entirely deliberate. The only one of the Ten Commandments of which Moses himself was actually guilty was Lo Tirzah. That we know of. <laughs> yes. Uh, Thou shalt not murder. And after he killed the nameless Egyptian and buried him in the sand, he himself fled to Midian to seek refuge. Some may regard Moses' violent act as heroic. Indeed, it's often portrayed as such. But was Moses haunted by it for his entire life? Did he not in some way equate on the grounds of his belief in the pursuit of justice 
his own deliberate killing with an accidental one? And did he, at this critical moment, just before reiterating the Ten Commandments, see compassion and understanding for his own transgression or one of the laws he was about to decree? A fascinating, fascinating <laughs> bit of teaching that I never encountered before, which is right before the Ten Commandments are given, there's the cities of refuge business. I had never put that together. And Moshe, who's going to declare to the people, here are the big ten, no-nos and have-tos, the big ten. He's guilty of one of the worst of them. You shall not murder. Moshe murdered somebody. We forget that, don't we? I shouldn't say we. I forget that. Well, we don't think of it as murder. We think of it as it was accidental. It was self-defense. Well, it wasn't self-defense for him. He was protecting protecting an innocent. You don't get to kill somebody to protect an innocent unless they have a gun to their head. The taskmaster was not about to cut off the head of the Hebrew. That's not what we're told. He was beating the Hebrew. We can imagine that was a routine occurrence. In a slave society, that is a routine occurrence. You kill that person who's beating the slave, which is a legal act, by the way, the beating of the slave. You kill that person, it's murder. Now, we justify Moses' action, because he's our guy, right? He's our hero, so we need to defend his honor and his behavior. And I believe part of that mythological tale is about being called to stop injustice by whatever means necessary when we see it. But it's not unproblematic. We tend to whitewash it. And it's totally forgivable and understandable. Why? But I love this kind of reframe, which is as he's about to deliver the Big Ten, there's this business about a way to deal with violating one of them, sort of, right? It's, you know, the city of refuge is not about murder. It's about an unintentional act. So, so Jonathan Boyd is suggesting maybe it's something about Moshe carrying that wrongdoing and the guilt of it and the weight of it and needing to have some kind of discussion of a way to rectify that accidental killing that he did by talking about the cities of refuge and then he can launch into what you're not supposed to do and what you are supposed to do. Well, what, as I recall, the people of the city of refuge not only said you can go there under these circumstances, but it said once you got there, you could stay until the judges came in and adjudicated the whole thing. So maybe <clears throat> Moses' feeling was, well, at least I'll get a trial. You know, or <laughs> somebody like me should get a trial, and that's the way to resolve this situation. Right. Was there any question in the killing of the Egyptian that it was always intentional or whether it was you know, coming in to save and oh, I'm beating him up and oh, I got carried away and now he's dead. Because we, you know, modern day, we make even more fine distinctions between well, there's completely accidental, involuntary manslaughter. And then there's 
well, you were beating him up, so it was possible that you were going to kill him, but even though you weren't planning, that's voluntary manslaughter. And then there's worse, and then there's worse than that. So did Moses, do we know for sure, he just went in to, you know, get him? The, o- the, only, the only clue to his intentionality um, is from, because it's very terse, Torah is very terse, as we know, particularly in those earlier stories. The only clue we have linguistically is that he looked both ways. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so it doesn't prove anything, but it seems it looks bad for Moses, right? It seems to suggest it was calculated enough that he made sure the coast was clear before he started pounding on the taskmaster and beat him to death. So it doesn't seem that he was so overcome, you know, by injustice or rage that it was like he was, what do you call it? Temporary insanity or whatever. Like, it was, no. We have these issues today where police have reacted and killed somebody and there's a discussion of, well, this person wasn't like holding a gun to the policeman. The person was just whatever. I forget the exact examples, but it's not unlike that. And we're really fast, some of us, to condemn the police, to say this is not proportional. That, you know, somebody refusing to identify themselves or running away is not a reason to kill them. So, and it seems to make a difference whether they're brown or white. How alarming. You're not going to add a racial thing to Moses and the Egyptian. I think that would be a very interesting discussion. Moshe thinks he's Egyptian. So Moshe thinks he's the same race as the person he kills. We think. We don't know. This is the interesting question about Moshe. One of them is does he identify with the Egyptian he kills? Moshe's been raised at the heart of the seat of power. He is the son of the Pharaoh. He's been raised in the palace. He's killing someone he identifies with. That's interesting right there, right? That he breaks with the the um, privileges of power and kills that person. But then some people want to suggest, oh, no, 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 no. His mother told him. He that he was Jewish. He was because the text says he sees one of his kinsmen oh, right. being beaten, right, and intervenes. But what I want to suggest, because I like it better, <laughs> what I want to suggest is that's the all-knowing narrator who says Moshe sees a kinsman being beat up. It doesn't say Moshe knows that's a kinsman. The narrator knows Moshe's a Hebrew. Duh, we know that. And so he sees a kinsman, meaning a Hebrew, being beaten up. It doesn't say Moshe knows that. And for me, that's more compelling, that Moshe is so upset by the injustice that he witnesses, the cruelty that he witnesses, that he breaks with his own white privilege. We'll just use that because it resonates for us, right? His own class you know, and, and race privilege and stops it by committing what is essentially treason. You don't get to put one of Pharaoh's guys to death. Only Pharaoh gets to decree that. So Moshe commits treason to stop what he feels like 
is is a deep existential injustice. So if Moses didn't know he was Hebrew at that point, then there must have been some point at which he found out. <laughs> because later in the story, he does recognize that. Does he? Well, let my people go. I mean, he... So what he's told... What do you, when does he learn who he is? What's the moment he learns who he is? The burning bush. How does he learn who he is at the burning bush? God shows him his birth papers. The birther movement. That happened in Kenya, by the way. So, right? God says, God reveals God's self to Moshe by saying, I am yud heh vav the God of your ancestors, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. As far as we know, that's the first time Moshe knows who his birth family is. He's being told, you are a descendant of, because it's your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if he knows anything about the mythology of the oppressed Hebrews... He knows then at that moment. So that was after the, he murdered. Correct. It's after he murders the taskmaster and is commissioned by God. Therefore, right. you're going to go and free that people. Right? And Moshe's like, I don't think so. Right? Which is a whole other story. Maybe that's one of the reasons he was chosen. It's because. His history of coming to the his history of coming to the defense of the Hebrews who are suffering. He's proven his ability to do that. Some commentators, Laura, go exactly there to say, what did he prove? He proved he was willing to act. He was willing to do what it was going to take. And God knew, of course, that it was going to take some pretty grisly stuff. It was going to take the firstborn, it was going to take the entire army being killed at the sea. It was going to take some pretty awful stuff to get these people freed. And that God needed to see that the leader was one who was ready and willing to do what it was going to take. That's still kind of a zealous murder. You think? I think, yeah. <laughs> and... As you pointed out, Look at somewhat, Pinhas, somewhat right? disturbing. Right. right. We, I mean, we, we have lots of disturbing. <laughs> we, there's not a lack of disturbing but here. But it's Moses. <laughs> I know it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> All right. So let's, let's look at this. So, so just take this idea of this Moshe incident being, and the city of refuge being right before the Ten Commandments. Love that. In order, like, for Moshe to deal with his own guilt and his own action before he becomes the lawgiver. I mean, God's the lawgiver, I, I should be clear, but the mouthpiece for the lawgiver. Read the next one, Bert. It may be that this week's Parsha Shoftim adds some fuel to this idea as it refers once again to the cities of refuge and includes the famous dictum, Tzedek, Tzedek, Terdolf, justice, justice you shall pursue. Moreover, Parshat Shoftim is always read on the first Shabbat of the month of Elul, traditionally the period of reflection and repentance, leading up to the Amim Noraim, the High Holy Days. Indeed, there's a beautiful Hasidic idea that draws a parallel between the cities of refuge and Elul, the former being a sanctuary in space for contemplation and atonement, the latter being a similar sanctuary in time. 
So at this very particular juncture juncture in the Jewish year, the notions of a sanctuary in time, accidental wrongdoing, and the pursuit of justice coalesce in an intriguing and challenging way and invite us to steady ourselves on the path to tshuva, repentance. How amazingly wonderful is that? We're reading this parsha, this business of refuge for having done something wrong unintentionally, but it was bad. It was really bad. And any of us who have done something really bad unintentionally, we carry the stain, the guilt, the pain of that, don't we? And cities of refuge were meant to be a way to deal with that. We get it even attached to Moshe himself. And we are given that at this time of year when what are we given in Elul? A refuge in time to begin the work of contemplation, to begin the assessment of where have we gone wrong, even unintentionally? Where have we caused damage, pain to ourselves, to other people, to the relationship that is supposed to be at the center of our lives? our relationship to justice and ethical behavior. The one, where are the ways? This is the sanctuary in time that we get to start even the cheshbon anefesh, the accounting of the soul that it's going to take for us to begin the process of teshuva, of return, of repentance. A beautiful analogy, I think. According to Rambam, The pathway to a physical city of refuge is meant to be as clear as possible. In the Mishnah Torah, he writes that, quote, the court is obligated to strengthen, to straighten the roads to the cities of refuge, to repair and broaden them. They must remove all impediments and obstacles. Bridges should be built over all natural barriers so as not to delay one who is fleeing to a city of refuge. So Rambam, when he explicates this law in his Mishnah Torah, where he's really looking at what what is exactly the law, goes even further and says, you don't just have to have cities of refuge. You need to have clear signage. (laughs) City of refuge, this way. (laughs) Right? And you need to pave that road. And, you know, Duluth, Minnesota, when it, you know, gets cold and snows and ices and, like, causes these huge potholes, you have to fix those on those roads first. And bridges, if like everything gets really weird and nasty, then you need to build a bridge. You need to make it easy for people to seek refuge. Not just provide the possibility of refuge, but as I watched my partner navigate the Medicare system, oh my God, if you don't have a college degree, seriously, It is ridiculous the amount of obstacles we put in the way of people getting the refuge they need, the help, the treatment, the whatever, the coverage they need. The signage isn't only not any good. It's like, could it be more torturous and confusing? Right? Probably not. How people who don't have a certain trained mind, you know, to, to be thinkers the way many of us are privileged to be trained. 
how are you supposed to access, in this case, healthcare coverage, right? But it, I think that's the idea Rambam's talking about. It's not enough that you have Medicare. Can people figure out how to access it? Can they figure out how to get it? Can some people figure out how to get financial aid for college? We don't help people be able to access the things that we claim we are such an enlightened society to have. Is Rambam's point. Can I ask what court he's referring to here? Where? So the, the court is obligated. The Mishnatori, the, the Rambam, yeah. that the court is obligated. In, in Israel, when they were, it was a sovereign state. So the Sanhedrin. But he's not referring back to this is. He's he's referring back to Torah law, and is and is explicating. Okay, Torah tells us you must have these cities of refuge. There is no court yet. Correct. Correct. Well, there there are smaller courts, right? Which is what this parsha is kind of discussing: is the judiciary. There is a judiciary. It's not the Sanhedrin that Rambam's referring to. So when Rambam's asking, what was the latest kind of explication of this law? It's that the court had to make sure that the pathway was clear to these cities of refuge. Whether or not that actually ever happened or was the case, I think Rambam is is not, he's not publishing the Mishnah Torah just to talk about what was. Right? He's talking about this is what was, and like I just did, what was the Medicare issue of his time and his Jews? That's why he's bringing it forward, right, is to say, are we providing free loans? The Hebrew Loan Society, the Hebrew Free Loan Society, right? Rambam is worried about are we making sure other Jews can open businesses because they can't get a loan from the government. They're not citizens where he lives. Well, in my mind, I'm trying to figure out the evolution here of all of the governmental functions uh, that are required in the state. Here it seems to me that where we're talking about it's the, the, the priests are, are, are all of it, the judiciary, the legislature, so the executive. They're not, though. They're not. So you've got prophets, you've got judges, you have priests, you have... We're talking about it yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So go home and read this whole parsha. <laughs> so, seriously, like it, 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 it's amazing what it lays out in terms of branches: the judiciary, the judicial branch, the executive branch. The I'm thinking about uh, a, a people who are in the desert here. This is the, the beginning, and I don't see a full. Fully operating. Uh, All right, so so we're going to go back to. In the desert. So this was all, you know, when we get to the land. Right, so remember, we're going to remember our history. We have two parallel lines. We have actual history, and what else do we have running parallel to it? Mythological history. This is. Torah. When this is written, they're in Israel. 
It's actual history. They're in Israel. This is established as a system already. It is put back in to a time of mythic history that they're in the desert. Remember, we have no indication that there ever was a desert experience for this people. A part, a part of the people might have had a desert experience. Most, this stuff is created by people who had always been in the land. They become converted to Yahwism. Once they become Yahwists, this is their system. Right? But we, Torah's good. Torah's good because we buy it, don't we? We buy this whole desert business. We buy that this is revealed in the desert for a future time. That's good writing. <laughs> we believe it, right? And that is an, and it's an important part of our mythic history. It wasn't actual history. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Thank you, Pam. All right. That's you. <laughs> That's you. All right. Um, according to the Rambam, the pathway to a physical city of refuge is meant to be as clear as possible. Right? So we just read that, didn't we? So there you go. Thank you. Refuge should be written at every crossroads so that the murderers should recognize the way and turn there. So if you're going to do that kind of signage for murderers... How much more so should you be putting up signs for good people who are just trying to access health care? <laughs> right? Medicare huh? this way. Or, or who, who really, you know, are trying or should apologize to you. For example, talking about not crimes, but other transgressions, right? right. So the person who is going to make an apology... You don't want to, you know, if you're the apologizee, cross your hands and tell them, like, you, you know, make it hard. Right? right? This is about, so I hear, I, I understand you're here to say something to me. Go ahead. Would you like to say <laughs> Lovely. So... Laura's taking us, whew, that was fast, like from zero to 60 in a few seconds, from, you know, m- making access possible to refuge and all the things that that means, and, you know, meaning repair and return and teshuva, and I hear Laura saying, let's, let's take that big and say, let's pave the way. If somebody's trying to come to you for the refuge of repair, let's pave a superhighway to make that happen. Come. Sit down. Let me make you a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Right? Lovely. Lovely, lovely. And we set up a bailing system so that people who are accused of a crime <clears throat> wouldn't have to remain in prison until they got a hearing. But today, most people who are accused of a crime can't afford the bail. Right. And the bailing offices won't lower the, they won't deal with low bails because they can't make any money on it. So people languish in, in jail for months at a time until they get a hearing. Right. At least the people from the low income area. Right. And the New York Times made a big story. So 100% Toro here, if we're taking Rambam, right, would say not okay. Absolutely not okay. For Paula? I was going to build on what Laura was saying and say not, not only... Not only are you inviting 
that person to make an apology, but you're saying that person deserves, is a deserving person and deserves the opportunity to make that apology. So it, it calls us to see people, especially people who hurt us, to see them as worthy of being forgiven. Yes, as worthy. Huge. And it's very big. That's, That's very big. So is there a, there's a fast way into this sanctuary? Is there a door on the other side back into society? So So it's an interesting question because some in one case it's as we heard it's till the till the judge would come in and rule and another we get that they have to stay there till the death of the high priest so that it wasn't just okay you didn't mean to so you go back to life as you knew it you've still taken a life and that means you forfeit certain rights and privileges that you had before. So that it's it's unclear. But if we're using the analogy of the High Holy Days, Elul and Teshuvah, 100%, you return back to who you were before, who were meant to be, who were worthy of being considered as by God, right? All of that gets repaired. We are commanded to believe at the end of Yom Kippur that we have been forgiven. That's why we close the service, the beautiful Na'ilah service. Y'all should try it, Na'ilah. Um, we close that beautiful service with Salachti Kidvarecha. A quote from Torah, I have forgiven according to your plea, your words. God speaking to Moshe. And then we're supposed to go home and have a feast. We're supposed to have a celebratory feast at the end of Yom Kippur. And you're not allowed to go home agonizing about, was I written in the book of life or the book of death? If you've done teshuva, you are commanded to understand yourself as forgiven. Because otherwise, which I, I you got to love Judaism. you got to love this stuff. <laughs> otherwise, you're insulting God. <laughs> Which is not a good thing. So how is it insulting God for me not to think I'm forgiven? You say you don't believe God. I don't believe God that what? That you were forgiven. So when God says, Salah ki Okay. How else is it insulting to God if I don't understand myself as forgiven? But why is it insulting to God if I don't believe that I'm forgiven? I'm putting myself in a higher position. I know more than even God does. I'm suggesting God is too small a person to forgive me. What I did, doesn't matter that there's a teshuva process in place. What I did was so bad, God is not going to be able to get over it. <laughs> right? God has a problem with me that's so bad that God can't move on and forgive me. That's insulting. To God, if I'm supposed to forgive, to Laura's point, if I'm supposed to forgive you, I'm supposed to be big enough and generous enough to get over myself and forgive you, I'm going to say, but God can't? God can't move past this? Really? 
So what are you saying? Right. So the rabbis like go so far as to say it's cheeky and insulting to God that you don't go home and have a feast saying you know that you've been forgiven. Joel. Thank you for saying that because uh, when we deal with guilt, you know, the guilt trip we all have, uh, we can go there. I mean, it reminds me of once I was at the workshop and uh, I was feeling bad about my relation with my children and I was not doing a good job and I was not doing enough and, and this, and it was all about me. And the woman said to me, well, who do you think you are? <laughs> you know, I mean, you brought them to the world. They're not yours. They have a life of their own. What so makes you so special? My God. <laughs> Who do you think you are? What makes you so special? That you're, that, that you're not going to make mistakes parenting? Really? Wow. You must think an incredible much about yourself, right? <laughs> it's a great way to... Because it flips the whole thing on its head, doesn't it? It's like putting the pin in the balloon. It immediately deflates all that craziness that we expand, right, to fill to the edges of the latex. We are so filled with how terrible we are. We're so much more terrible than anybody else. We're that arrogant. Yeah, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. We're supposed to, as Jews, be in touch with our fallibility, at this time of year, so that we don't go into the shame game, right? Because that is completely unhelpful. We're supposed to be in touch with our guilt. And I don't mean the feeling of guilt, because I don't think guilt is a feeling. I think guilt is a judgment. We're supposed to be in touch with our guilt. Where am I guilty of wrongdoing? Let me feel how that feels. It feels icky. makes me feel sad. I feel some shame. Good. That's what you're supposed to feel. And that moves you to a place of teshuva. But you don't get to stay in shame and guilt. That does not serve anybody or anything. The point of teshuva is to come to a place where we can let it go and get over it. And grow. And then Moshe is able to give the Ten Commandments. But not until he deals in a place of refuge with his own shame and his own guilt. We can't then help be agents for a more just and equitable society to deliver those tablets until we deal with our own crap. So he did deal with it. I mean, we're coming back to the discussion. <laughs> That's what we do here. The Hasidic parallel above perhaps leads to a similar conclusion about the temporal refuge that is Elul. Justice in this instance would be for us to clear and repair every possible route to allow those who have done wrong, whether accidentally or deliberately, to be given some respite and a little sanctuary in order to reflect on and make amends for their actions. We would often like others to make it as easy as possible for us to apologize for our own misdemeanors, but are we making it as easy as possible for them to do likewise for theirs? Elul is a signpost at a crossroads in our lives, Judaism gives us this brief window in the year to clear the pathways towards our own atonement and that of others. Many of us live, as perhaps Moses did, under the various weights of misdemeanors committed long ago that were never resolved, and with a long-standing wish for compassion and understanding for that wrongdoing. Now is the time 
to clear away all the existing impediments and build all the necessary bridges towards achieving those resolutions, doing so may just bring a little more justice to the world. So our intention for Elul, our intention for this month before the High Holy Days, and I'm going to encourage each one of us to really think really seriously about how we can do this. How can we pave the roads to atonement for each other? I mean, yes, we always talk about it's time to start thinking about that, but like this is a, this is a, for me, new intention for my Elul this year. How can I pave the road to other people? How can I put signs up saying forgiveness is this way? I'm right here. I'm ready. Right? To others. Right? And how can I grease the wheels, you know, of my own approach to others to, to ask for their forgiveness for the ways that I have failed them? And, uh, that is what makes for a Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur experience of depth and of real change. We can't wait for Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is not enough time. Right? The 10 days of repentance are the super 10. But we're given 30 before that. 28, whatever it is. Before that. Before the super 10. But I really believe like we have so much internal work to do. We have so much brush to clear away. So much rubble to clear away. That we need all of Elul to, right, to be about building the pathways that will allow for a Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur experience of, of forgiveness. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.